The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Both detectives were to report immediately to the scene when they were notified within minutes of Patsy Ramsey's 911 call. They both chose not to report to the scene, but instead to go to the police station for documents. More than an hour and a half after they were notified, they arrived at the scene. As the detectives at the crime scene, they were supposed to be in charge. Despite stopping at the police department, they had only one tape recorder between them. None of the interviews with the Ramseys were recorded. From Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey case 25 years later by Paula Woodward. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies, to episode 37, The Pen is Mightier Than the Sword, on Unsolved, the John JonBenet Ramsey case 25 years later by Paula Woodward. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month, I will discuss a book I pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. No boring timeline here. I present the story from the author's point of view. In the third episode of the series, which I call Second Cast, I'll delve into the path not taken, the threads not pulled, add analysis and updates to the case that is compelling. These episodes are a little different and can shake things up. A quick housekeeping note. Big shout out to Twitter, 681 RJM Robert McMullen. Thank you for your support. It means a great deal to me and it really brightens my day. I thought my commenting on my personal situation would be over since much has reached conclusion. But no, no, no. My Uncle Terry is in Poltava, Ukraine, as well as my Cardenas cousins. My heart goes out to all of them and to all the Ukrainian people as they resist the invasion. The bravery and unity is incredible and characteristics I admire greatly. So many prayers to support you through this terrible time. Praying that by the time this goes live, the situation is far better. Come on, goodness. We need a win for the good guys. Now, getting back to book club. In coming up with today's snack, I did some research into unique Colorado cuisine. And Rocky Mountain oysters came up. But no, 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 no. I am not going there, not even for you murder bookies. Bull or bison testicles just is not on my menu. However, I found the perfect snack for our book club. Colorado is also known for green chilies. I found Ruth Grinder's Colorado-style green chili recipe to make a stew, a dip, a sauce, anything you want. Now, I prefer to dip Fritos myself. Now, this can take a bit to make, but it's only due to the number of delicious ingredients. Green chilies, onion, jalapenos, cumin, garlic, oregano, broth vegetable, pork, beef broth, whatever you prefer. So it can be vegetarian, then butter and flour. If you're gluten-free, cornstarch works just as well. To get cooking, you saute the veggies, the spices, and add the fire-roasted tomatoes, then broth. You make the roux, R-O-U-X, which was a new word for me. That's what you make when you melt the butter and you add flour to it, which you whisk until it's smooth. You mix this into the broth, which makes it thicken into a dip. Simmer for two to three hours, and it's ready to be a stew, a sauce on tortillas, whatever. There's a stovetop and a crockpot version of the recipe on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Now, the perfect pairing for this is Naked Wine's Rebel Merlot, developed by Jen Pfeiffer and her family's vineyard. This Merlot is heavy on the fruit, red berries and cherries, which meld into a really vibrant, pleasurable red that can handle the heat of the chili sauce, which you control. 
Rebel Merlot also has gentler tannins than its cab cousin. The special twist on this is Jen Pfeiffer ages portions of this Merlot in French oak barrels, adding more depth and texture to the wine. And you get a quality Merlot for $13 or $10.99 if you join the Naked Wines Angel Club, which I highly recommend. They really need to sponsor this podcast, don't they? Anyway, information about the Rebel Merlot is also on my blog, so check it out. And now, book club. Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey case 25 years later by Paula Woodward is a disturbing story. One reason I selected it. Paula Woodward was raised as an army brat at Fort Keogh, the middle child between two sisters. Paula thrived breeding pigs, cattle, and riding horses. She graduated from the Montana State University and began teaching until she started her career in reporting for KUSA-TV Denver. She made such an impact on legislators and law enforcement, loyal fans had bumper stickers on their cars that read, I break for Paula Woodward. Also writing for the Denver Post, her stellar reputation was improved by her coverage of the John Benet Ramsey case in 1996. You see, Paula Woodward refused to report spoon-fed facts presented at press conferences until she had double-sourced the facts herself. That's good journalism. She did an exclusive interview with the Ramsey family specifically because she was reporting fairly. And this is what this book is about, reporting the actual facts, not fabrications. Paula's peers honored her with some 50 investigative reporting awards, including multiple Emmy, Edward R. Murrow, and Society of Professional Journalism prizes. Retiring after 32 years of, quote, telling stories that make a difference, end quote, Paula resigned from her TV station to uncover what actually happened in the Ramsey case. Her earlier book, We Have Your Daughter, The Unsolved Murder of John Benet Ramsey 20 Years Later, is followed by today's book, which is quite the illuminating read at 224 pages. And the best news is Paula Woodward and John Ramsey are going to be at CrimeCon Las Vegas, April 29th to May 1st, 2022. And I am going to be there too. I assure you, I will do an update episode on all that I hear, learn, see, but definitely after this trilogy on the John Benet Ramsey case. Paula's introduction establishes the perspective and purpose of this book, and I'm paraphrasing here. In 1996, the news of the murder of a six-year-old girl splintered the truth and cemented the belief that her parents had killed their daughter into our conscious memory. Immediately, a number of the Boulder police adopted a strategy to convict the parents through public opinion. Information put out was deliberately incorrect, distorted, and revised to divert attention from the botched police investigation. This has continued for 25 years and it continues still. I find what I read in this book to be utterly outrageous, completely mind-blowingly corrupt, undermining our entire justice system. It will take me all three episodes to thoroughly share all of this with you. Read the book. I know, I know, I know. I always say that, but it is really true. Even in over two to three hours of discussion, I cannot hit every theme, every point, and you need to read with me. This is an important book in true crime. Let me explain the facts that Woodward shares in her opening pages. 25 years ago, John Benet Ramsey was tortured, murdered, and found in the wine cellar, a fancy name for a basement storage room of the family home that day after Christmas. Early that morning, her mother, Patsy Ramsey, frantically called 911 reporting that her daughter had been kidnapped. She'd found a two-and-a-half-page ransom note addressed to the father, John Ramsey, on the spiral staircase. Police arrived. Seven hours later, John Benet's body was found by her father, not law enforcement. Immediately, investigators fixated on John and Patsy Ramsey as the killers and greased the wheels to prove this. From videos, from photographs, clearly, John Benet is a beautiful child blonde hair, blue-eyed. Videos of John Benet participating in child beauty pageants were publicized. Entertainment and news TV focused on the pageant videos 
and questioned if her parents acted responsibly in this choice for their daughter. Critics pointed out the sexualizing of children, a January 19, 1997 headline in the Kansas City Star was, quote, pillars of the community, these parents are creeps, end quote. This is written about parents deeply mourning the death of a six-year-old child. Did they stop to question how responsible they were for printing this? I'm sorry, I had to ask. And isn't the beholder responsible for what he reads into a child beauty pageant, seeing it as sexualizing? Yeah, I find that to be creepy, and I am looking at you a little funny. Paula Woodward digs to get into the facts and evidence in Unsolved. She tenaciously investigates the conspiracy theories expanded upon by law enforcement that implicate Patsy and John Ramsey. She interviews homicide detectives, experts on how a case like this should have been executed. She exposes the public servants who acted without supervision in their zeal to convict the Ramseys. She documents from the day the body is found, exposing the strategic and deliberate lives that tainted public perception of this case 25 years later. Paula utilized the database at the Vanderbilt University Television News Archives in Nashville, Tennessee, analyzing ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN, who prominently covered the story. She also had access to 3,000 pages summarizing the Boulder Police reports of the John Benet Ramsey Murder Book Summary Index that is not available to the public. The FBI, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and Boulder Sheriff Department contributed to this compilation of data originally prepared by the Boulder District Attorney's Office. A source provided Woodward with a thousand page file from the Boulder PD officers, plus a 128 page confidential police department master witness list. She used both fully in this book. Paula Woodward also interviews John Ramsey, his current wife, Jan, and son, John Andrew, among others, inherently involved in the case. You should be confident that the information presented is factual. I believe it is. In 1996, John Ramsey was a self-made millionaire, living paycheck to paycheck, enjoying his life with wife, Patsy, and younger children, Burke and John Binet. Today, John Ramsey lives in a mobile home still working at age 77, with his wife, Jan, whom he married in 2014, eight years after Patsy died of ovarian cancer. John spent his life savings 25 years ago, funding his own investigation into who killed his daughter. He ran out of money because he couldn't get a job, given the misinformation shared by the Boulder Police Department that destroyed his reputation. John shared this example to Paula. He was interviewing with the company that he hoped to work for, and John was told he was quote, very well qualified, but we can't hire you. The backlash to our company, which is publicly held, would just be too detrimental, end quote. This is terribly unfair, as you will see. John and Jan met through mutual friends, and Jan thought she knew about the Ramsey case. In hindsight, she realizes she didn't understand the dynamic at all. Jan reflected, saying, quote, a couple days before we got married, he was pacing back and forth and peeking out the window and concerned about people that might be trying to take pictures. And I thought, oh, this poor man, he's been traumatized. But lo and behold, we ended up on the newspaper, front page in the Globe and the National Enquirer. Sure enough, he was right, end quote. Jan Ramsey, married to John for seven years, has described herself as his firewall. Quote, people who can't reach him go through me, and I will have the press calling me, investigators calling me, people with tips calling me, Creepy people are emailing me. I even have a file labeled mean or crazy people because who knows what leads might be in that file, end quote. A dad having to hunt his daughter's killer because the police didn't, right? That's bothersome. I don't see O.J. Simpson moving into a trailer after he spent every penny he had trying to find the killer of Nicole Brown Simpson and Rod Goldman. Did you? O.J. did say he'd spend the rest of his life doing so, right? I'm sorry, I had to draw that parallel. Oh, and an important note, John Ramsey makes positive comments about the honorable serving police officers out there. He just had none in his daughter's case. Keep in mind, this is a man who has relied on his faith to get him through the loss of his daughter, Beth, in a car accident, followed four years later by John Benet's murder, and then Patsy's death. This will test a man. 
So John, Patsy, and their nine-year-old son, Burke, were home when John Bonet was killed, all of them being suspects at some point. After the murder, they moved back to Atlanta, Georgia. Finding a home was encapsulated in trauma. John Bonet was killed in a basement, so their new home couldn't have a basement. The media stalked them, so they'd need a home where the media couldn't spy on them. By the time Burke was in high school, they moved to Charlevoix, Michigan, a place they'd spent summers for years. And it was a good decision. Burke had many friends there, easing into a new transition. How is Burke today? He is the rock of normalcy for the Ramsey family. Burke successfully works as a software developer, good friends, living his life well. Who does John Ramsey think killed John Bonet? Specifically, he has no idea, but he tends to accept retired FBI profiler John Douglas's assessment that it was someone who was angry or jealous of John Ramsey. Quote, this was not about John Bonet. This was about trying to hurt me, which has been a heavy burden. I told Douglas, I cannot imagine ever meeting anybody that mad at me. End quote. 25 years later, John continues to cooperate in searches for the killer, pressuring the Boulder PD, stemming from his belief that he let John Benet down, that he failed his little girl. Quote, I'm her father, and I always swore to protect her. And the time she needed me most, I wasn't there. And I can't ever forget that. End quote. This just makes my heart ache. They have been through so much. So back to the crime, December 26, 1996. Patsy found the ransom note, and she calls 911, saying they have a kidnapping, begging for help, saying her daughter's missing, that victory, SBTC, is how the note was signed, begging them to send someone to hurry, hurry, hurry. I have a link to the Ramsey 911 call on my blog. Paula Woodward immediately addresses how seriously botched this initial investigation was while updating where each of the key individuals are today. Responding to this 911 call, Boulder Police Officer Rick French arrived at the house at 6.01 a.m. on a dark, freezing cold morning. French interviewed the parents and began searching the 7,000-square-foot home, which took time. Officer French did not search the storage basement room where John Benet's body would be found. French left at 10 a.m., leaving the detective on the case alone, going to write his police report, which was roughly three pages long. French's explanation for not finding John Benet's body is, quote, In the basement, I attempted to open the door leading to the area where John Benet was ultimately found, but it was secured by a wooden latch above the door. The door opened inward, and I was looking for access out of the house. Since the door could not have been used for that purpose and it was latched closed, I did not open it. End quote. Bad decision. Since French was the first responder on the scene, one of his duties was to keep the crime scene entry log, which tracks the arrival and departure of all law enforcement into crime scenes. I learned about this when I went to my Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, Citizens Police Academy course in 2017. It is critical to do this immediately and efficiently as it goes through the chain of evidence custody. This was not done effectively with conflicting times appearing. Officer Rick French had no experience with homicide investigation, retired about three years ago, and has moved out of state. Officer Paul Reichenbach arrived immediately after French at 6.02 a.m. He began searching the outside of the Ramsey house. His one-paragraph report did not mention whether he found any footprints. Later, he was debriefed and stated that he, quote, did not believe there was snow on the sidewalks, end quote. Later, this directly conflicts with leaks and false information from two of his colleagues. That Reichenbach was debriefed by superior officers is also unusual. Reichenbach also had no homicide experience. He resigned from Boulder PD, and he works as a civilian on the Boulder photo radar. Commander Sergeant Bob Whitson, the on-call supervisor, arrived at the Ramsey home three hours into the investigation, so approximately 9 a.m. He remained for 30 minutes with the remaining police officers, leaving Detective Linda Ont in charge. Whitson admitted fault in releasing the officers, who should have stayed to assist Ont. He admits that he should have cleared the home of the 16 friends who had come over to help support John and Patsy, too. 
Whitson should have made certain the home had been searched before he left. Like the others, Whitson had little to no homicide experience. He retired in 2005, got his PhD in criminal justice, and moved out of state. He wrote a book titled Injustice, Why John Benet Ramsey Was Murdered by a Statistic Psychopath, Not Her Parents. I've read this book as part of my research. And more on this in episode 39, Second Cast, Crime of the Century. According to the crime scene log, Detective Linda Ant and Fred Patterson arrived at either 8.10, 8.11, or 8.30 that morning. Notified within minutes of Patsy Ramsey's 911 call, they were to immediately report to the crime scene. And they did not, but as I said in the opening, went to the police station to get documents. 90 minutes later, they managed to get to the Ramsey home, and as detectives, they were in charge of the crime scene. Detective Patterson left with Commander Whitson around 9.45. According to homicide protocol, he should have stayed. Detective Aunt was left alone with 16 law enforcement Ramsey friends in the home, plus John and Patsy, a complete violation of all established police policy. The only people who should have been in the house were crime scene techs plus detectives, and so two and a half hours in, the investigation is completely compromised. Now, granted, They're waiting for a phone call from the kidnappers, so John and Patsy needed to be there too. Detective Aunt directed John Ramsey and a friend to search the home to see if anything was amiss. And thus, it was John who found John Benet's body, breaking down, carrying her upstairs. Aunt then moved the body again, and this is a ghastly break with police protocol, and it should never have happened at all. Thirteen days later, Detective Linda Ahn's report was turned in, although homicide police reports are specifically required to be turned in by 48 hours later maximum. Time restraints were not being enforced. Neither Detective Ahn nor Patterson had homicide experience. Ahn resigned from the force in 1999, suing the Boulder PD for violating her right to free speech. She lost. Patterson retired a few years back, and he now lives out of state. Homicide detective Lou Schmidt is one of the heroes in this story, in my opinion. In March of 1997, Detective Schmidt was brought into the case by the Boulder DA's office due to his expertise in homicide investigation. At first, Lou Schmidt believed the Ramseys had killed their daughter, but he changed his mind on seeing the evidence firsthand. Soon, Schmidt was vilified by the Boulder PD for his divergent thinking that an intruder killed the child. Lou quit in 1998 when the case was clearly going in the wrong direction, and he died of colon cancer in 2010. Commander John Eller was the guy in charge of the Ramsey investigation. He did not immediately report to the crime scene or the police department when notified at 8.10 on December 26, 1996. He had a sick relative. Hey, it happens. He also had no homicide experience. In October 1997, he was removed as commander of the case. He resigned and returned to Florida. Why was he removed? Because of the horribly inept investigation, deliberate leaks of false information, and basically not doing his job. Detective Steve Thomas was a competent narcotics detective at Boulder PD, but he had zero experience as a homicide detective in 1996. Assigned as one of the initial investigators, He believed Patsy Ramsey, in a fit of anger, killed John Benet, who'd wet the bed. Evidence proves that John Benet had not wet her bed, although her panties did have urine stains. In spite of this, Thomas would hang on to this belief, testifying to this fact in a pretrial hearing in 2003. As of 2021, he works as a carpenter and is a paid speaker on the Ramsey case. The Boulder chief of police when John Benet Ramsey was killed was Tom Covey. He was criticized for an inadequately trained department. He was criticized for failing to control the Ramsey case. He was criticized for lack of leadership. And these criticisms are sadly accurate. A few weeks into the case, Chief Covey said at a press conference that the investigation was being handled, quote, just right, end quote. He also had no homicide experience. Heat on. Chief Covey retired in November 1997, working in the Boulder City Manager's Office 
from May 1998 until his retirement in December of 1998, two years into the Ramsey case. All right, Paula Woodward is nothing if not thorough. As a long-term reporter from Denver, she had known the detective chief of police, Dave Michaud, for several years. He has a good reputation, and he had been with the Denver PD for over 30 years. Michaud retired in 2010, and he passed away from cancer in December 2020 at 80 years old. She asked the Denver chief about his insights into the Ramsey case. Chief Michaud explained that he offered to help Boulder Police Chief Tom Kobe, suggesting they give him one or all of his detectives for the Ramsey case, quote, and no one needs to know we're involved, end quote, if that was the way Kobe wanted it. Kobe was stunned, quote, for what, end quote, he replied, refusing Michaud's generous offer. Kobe clearly should have accepted. The longest serving commander in the Ramsey case was Mark Beckner, joining the investigation three weeks in. His focus was on interviewing first responders about the problems with their reports. In June 1997, he was appointed lead investigator, succeeding Chief Kobe in 1998. Mark retired in 2014. Oddly, a year later, he participated in a Reddit question and answer, and his responses did not match the facts on the case, causing the interview to be pulled down. He also had no homicide experience. I mean, Boulder had like one homicide a year, and they weren't complicated homicides like the John Benet Ramsey case. Alex Hunter was the district attorney for Boulder for 28 years, and he was on vacation in Hawaii when John Benet died. He remained in Hawaii for another nine days before returning to Boulder. This is the Christmas season. People do go on vacation. This DA was criticized by his colleagues for not taking the case to trial and not properly running his office. Hunter spoke openly about the awful relationship between the Boulder PD and the prosecutor's office, but did next to nothing to improve the situation. Accused of leaking information after he accused others of doing so, Alex Hunter was removed from the case by Colorado Governor Roy Romer in 1998. Another of my heroes in a case fraught with ineptitude is DA Mary Lacey, who succeeded Alex Hunter and had a good reputation as an expert in sexual assaults. It was Lacey who pursued the newly developed touch DNA technology in 2008 with controversial results. She did not choose to run for re-election in 2009 and now works for a Boulder law firm. So this is the cast of characters who are most directly involved in the Ramsey investigation over the last 25 years. Two of the original officers remain on the case today. So Paul opposes the question, quote, why, after 25 years, are people still so certain that either Patsy Ramsey tortured and killed her daughter, very possibly stun gunning her twice, then sexually assaulting her, finally using a garrote to choke her unconscious twice, hitting her so hard that the blow caved in her skull, then writing a ransom note to cover up what she'd done, or an outsider tortured and killed the little girl, possibly stun gunning her twice, then sexually assaulting her, using the girl to choke her into unconsciousness twice, then hitting her so hard that the blow caved in her skull, then writing a ransom note, end quote. That is one hell of a question that we are about to find the answers to. Publicity from the first week of the murder is the foundation of the belief that Patsy Ramsey killed John Binet. Then throw in the videos of John Brene performing at child beauty pageants and public opinion hardened against the family. Few of the gory details on how John Brene suffered and was killed were released that first week. It was too painful, too horrifying. It was far easier, far more captivating to watch the little girl performing at pageants, and the media ran wild. The child pageant speculation ranged from why does a little girl need to wear that makeup? To what's with all these child pageants at all? A little about child pageants that have been around since the 1950s in the United States. And earlier, if you examine local holiday events, fairs, and festivals, where they held the Better Baby Contest, where the prettiest received an award. Me and my research, after all. After the Ramsey murder, sociologist Hillary Levy Friedman 
researched the world of child beauty pageants while at Brown University. She'd always been intrigued by beauty pageants. Her mother is a former Miss America. Levy Friedman was interviewed by Colorado's radio Ryan Warner in 2016. Hillary Levy Freeman tells Ryan, quote, We have no way of knowing if her participation in child duty pageants is what led to her tragic death. We do know that this has not happened to any other young child beauty pageant contestants before or since. So it's an interesting angle to the story, but not a central one, end quote. I really do appreciate facts and research. About child pageants, quote, the image of the subculture, which has been part of America for quite some time, exposed this world to people who said, oh my goodness, I would never do that. There must be something wrong with people who do, and there must be something wrong with the Ramses. To a sizable minority who see these images, they say, wow, that looks like fun. Wow, I'd love to do that. Wow, dress up is a lot of fun. So there are always multiple views on everything. Que sera, sera. Pageant life was forced to adapt under COVID restrictions, but I saw on Beauty Pageants 2022, multiple links to all kinds of pageants for junior princesses and princess, junior preteen and preteens, junior teens and teen pageants, all featuring little girls. So pageants are alive and well, even with mixed publicity over the last 25 years. TLC has given us toddlers and tiaras, and it won't be going away anytime soon. Yet hindsight is 2020. NBC reported in 2012 that John Ramsey had changed his perception on child pageants, saying it's bizarre. He explained that Patsy and John Bonet didn't see it that way, that they did it for fun. However, John said, quote, I now believe with all my heart that it's not a good idea to put your child on public display, only because that possibly might have drawn attention to us. My advice as a parent is just recognize that, regardless of where you live, there could be evil around you. And don't be naive about it. Keep your kids protected, end quote. By all means, protect your children however you believe it's best. Almost immediately, the Boulder PD engaged in a deliberate misinformation campaign, releasing information that led to damaging headlines. Specifically, the Boulder PD information officer said, Quote, DNA was taken from the Ramses, but not Patsy, end quote. December 30th, four days after the murder, the headline, quote, Boulder Police News Conference, no danger from a killer on the loose, Patsy Ramsey did not give DNA, end quote. Well, that is a bald-faced lie. The police report from two days earlier, December 28th, confirms that at, quote, 4.34 p.m., Patricia Patsy Ramsey gave her DNA. 4.34 p.m., blood drawn. 4.42 p.m., hair samples. 4.50 p.m., fingerprints, end quote. Included in this report are Patsy's comments during this whole procedure. Quote, will this help me find out who killed my baby? And I did not murder my baby, end quote. But newspapers across the world reported that Patsy Ramsey did not give DNA. It's just not true. Many still believe this and is 100% untrue. A second big headline taken from the police press conference assured the public that there was no maniac out there running around killing children. Paula Woodward brought in an outside homicide investigator with 30 years experience for his thoughts. He said the Boulder police, quote, Turn the light back on the family. This is early in the investigation. Boulder isn't in a position to prove or support this statement. It's wrong. And it can be brought up at trial to show haste and unfounded bias, end quote. Hmm. I understand reassuring the public who were very fearful that there was a crazed person running around town killing kids. In their seal to diffuse the fear, they confirmed to the public who the police believed killed John Binet, her parents. Headlines from the first week. The Daily News of New York headline, no cause for concern, quoting the Boulder police spokeswoman. Quote, police would not call the 53-year-old father a suspect, but tellingly, they said the public is in no danger from a killer on the loose, end quote. 
The next day, a similar article appeared, adding that Patsy had not given DNA to the police. It's just not true. By December 31st, 1996, 21 major newspapers across the country published similar false stories. In California, Indiana, Wisconsin, Virginia, South Carolina, Texas, Ohio, Tennessee, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, Nevada, and Idaho. Do you recall hearing this? Oh, I do. I absolutely do. Did anyone report on the bungled investigation? No. Other headlines include, from CBS on December 31st, 1996, the public is not in any danger. John Ramsey pilots his plane to funeral. January 1st, 1996, Rocky Mountain News. John Ramsey is a pilot and flew his family to Georgia in his plane. All right, so this cold man flew his family to John Benet's funeral from Colorado to Georgia. The problem is this is entirely false. It's just not true. John Ramsey's company provided two pilots who flew the family to the funeral and back to Boulder afterwards. Finding out about the headline weeks later, John was aghast. Quote, I couldn't have flown a plane. I could barely walk or function. I was so broke with grief. End quote. While you might think that journalists and reporters confirm information before publishing, no one contacted the Ramsey family before the story went to print. All over the country. None checked on the accuracy of this report. And this was never publicly corrected. And eight months later, this false information appears in a major magazine article. On New Year's Day, Boulder Mayor Leslie Durgan responded to the CNN interview with the Ramseys that had aired the night before and told the Boulder Daily Camera, Rocky Mountain News, CNN and others, quote, it's not like there's someone walking around the streets of Boulder preparing to strangle young children, end quote, triggering more inaccurate coverage on the case. They just could not know this at this point in the investigation. Mayor Durgan also said, quote, there were no visible signs of forced entry in the house where John Benet was found dead, end quote. Wow. Well, if that was true, it would be really damning. But guess what? It's not true. When Paula Woodward examined the police records, there were eight possible signs of forced entry into the Ramsey home. Eight. Far cry from none. One. Fresh pry marks on the solarium door near the deadbolt. Two. Unlocked living room window. An extension cord exited the house, providing electricity to Christmas decorations. Three. Unlocked window in the formal dining room. Four, open French door was ajar, but no sign of forced entry. Five, pry marks on the screen door that indicated damage to the area of the lock handle consistent with the door being forced open with lock engaged. Six, open door butler pantry. John Ramsey's friend arrived at the house at 6.01 a.m. and, quote, found the butler kitchen door standing open about a foot before Detective Arndt arrived, end quote. At 8 a.m., a neighbor, quote, got up and observed a basement door leading to the kitchen area was standing wide open, end quote, also referring to the butler kitchen door. Seven, smudged window frame, the northeast basement bath. Two areas were cleared of dust, quote, the impression is consistent with the application of fingers to the area. The associated area inside the residence shows smudge marks on both wall above and just south of the toilet, a piece of garland similar to that found in the wine cellar, which is the storage area where John Benet was found, was found stuck to the wall on the east impression. A partial shoe print was found on top of the toilet cupboard in the northeast bathroom, end quote. Eight, metal grate disturbance area, located below the broken basement window, observed with leaves and outside debris. Further investigation showed a suitcase under the broken basement window. It's in the police video. It is theorized that a suspect used it as a possible way in the home. The suitcase, which was not John Benet's, held her clothing and a toy. An important point is that homicide detective Lou Smith was easily able to climb through the metal gate 
through the broken window and in the basement of the home. None of this information was made public, none. To this day, when Paula speaks to reporters who covered the story, they are shocked to learn this. By January 3rd, 1997, a whole week and a half after the murder, more media was reporting that the murder wasn't a random act. Boulder Police Chief Tom Kobe concurred with the mayor's statements. John Temple, the managing editor of both the Rocky Mountain News and Washington Post during the early days of the Ramsey investigation, commented, quote, We talk about trust in our society, trust in our institutions, trust in our media. When you break that trust and then it's discovered, the ramifications are extremely serious. In a case like this, it means we don't trust law enforcement. It's very disturbing to trace the information released. Their deliberate behavior utilizing inaccuracy to prove their points is so wrong, end quote. You know what else is wrong, Mr. Temple and all the editors out there? Reporters not double sourcing these comments and being lazy, just running with the false official narrative. That's wrong. That's what's very wrong. And of course, they issued retractions to fix all this. No, no, it's still out there. The next day, January 4th, 1997, ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, The New York Daily News, Sacramento Bee, Albuquerque Journal, The Twin Falls, Idaho Times News, all reported Mayor Durgan's, quote, no need to fear, no random act, no signs of forced entry, end quote, fiction. Mayor Leslie Durgan was interviewed about these comments and told Paula Woodward that, quote, I was not consulting the police chief, end quote. Okay, so she's just making stuff up and talking out her ass? Good to know. But in a 1999 interview for a documentary, Mayor Durgan disputed and denied her own statements, saying that she had regularly consulted with Chief Kobe, who specifically cleared her no killer on the loose comments. So which is it, Mayor? All right, she explained, quote, It was in large part to allay the fears of children in our community and to let people know the information that I had at the time that we did not have a crazed person on the streets, end quote. That sounds a lot better than I wasn't consulting with the police chief, doesn't it? I'm sorry, I don't believe a word she utters at this point. And the media report successfully pushed the Ramseys did it mantra. Heck of a first week, right? For the next 16 days, which is incredibly long for a news cycle, the Ramsey story was reported on the four dominant national newscasts in 1997, ABC News, CBS, CNN, and NBC, all of which damned the Ramseys. Video of John Binet and her child pageants also began December 31st, 1996, and continued well through January 1997. January 19, 1997, a story appeared in Newsweek magazine about John Binet getting her hair colored, a six-year-old. And the point of view? What kind of mother does this to a six-year-old child? I vividly recall this one, and I reacted negatively, as I was supposed to do. And I raised an eyebrow thinking, wow, winning pageants was really a priority, mom. Only... It wasn't true. And I found this out reading this book, which is what I always tell you to do, isn't it? Read the book. John Binet did not have her hair dyed. John Binet did not have her hair dyed. She didn't have her hair dyed. No reliable hair stations admitted to dyeing John Binet's hair either because it hasn't happened. Just baseless gossip. And yet this myth continues along with the rest. Patsy and John refuted this, saying it wasn't true, as did family members, as did friends but it didn't make a dent in the hostile narrative of Patsy being a terrible mother, and it was all over the news and talk shows. In rapid succession, articles on dying John Binet's hair were published. Nine months later, October 12, 1997, a Denver Post printed, quote, John Binet's hair dyed white blonde. Her lashes are curled. Her lips are brushed a bright red, end quote. It's just unbelievable. February 1997 brought the most disgusting allegation, incest. For some reason that defies any logic, the former Miss America, Marilyn Vandiver Atler of Denver, 
who was crowned back in 1958, happened to be an incest survivor, and she made headlines. Ex-Miss America interviewed twice in Ramsey investigation in the Boulder Daily Camera, February 27, 1997. Huh? All right, I applaud Miss Atler as an outspoken survivor of incest who works to combat child abuse. But what does she have to do with a child's murder in Boulder, Colorado? Once the Atler story ran in Denver, more TV, radio, and newspapers all over interviewed Atler with 93 newspapers publishing. In these stories, Atler was very candid about her discussions with the Boulder PD and her experience with incest. But what great value would this interview hold? Did she know John Binet? Did she know the Ramseys? Where are journalistic standards? Is there any critical thinking going on here? Hello? The answer is no. What is truly shameful is the police knew that John Binet was not the victim of incest. Based on reports from the coroner who performed the autopsy, another doctor from Children's Hospital who was brought in to assist with a portion of the autopsy, and John Binet's pediatrician. And this is all dated January 19, 1997. Unanimously, all three medical experts concluded that John Binet had no evidence of abuse of any kind prior to her assault and murder. The Boulder PD Interest Attorney's Office just ignored their conclusions because this is inconvenient evidence. Are you fuming yet, murder bookies? Grieving father, John Ramsey, is basically tacitly accused of incest. Just think about this. And he's just buried his little girl. Now this. Paula Woodward followed up with that expert homicide investigator who said, quote, somebody has an idea, incest, and says, we don't believe those supposed expert doctors. They don't know what they're talking about, end quote. Unacceptable. Three doctors' opinions just rejected. By the way, since 1969, Colorado has been a mandatory reporter state. John Benet's pediatrician would have lost his medical license if he thought she was being abused and he failed to report it. She wasn't being abused. Another critically important piece of information is, of course, the ransom note. Handwriting analysis began in the early moments of this case. Both John and Patsy were asked to rewrite the ransom note multiple times using both their right and left hands. Experts from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation analyzed the results, asking Patsy for five handwriting tests in all. In total, six handwriting experts were brought in to examine the note. The initial experts from CBI, plus two hired by the Ramsey defense attorney, and the Boulder PD hired three more. Coming to the chase. Fact, John Ramsey did not write the ransom note. Patsy, who is said to be the writer across media, TV, roundtables, newspapers, most likely did not write it either, according to experts who judge the likelihood of her writing the note using a Likert scale, one to five. All experts from defense and prosecution determined that she was within one point of absolutely not being the ransom note writer. This is a far, far cry from Patsy wrote the note. That is a low probability, low. But the Boulder PD would not accept the handwriting experts' conclusions, not even their own experts' conclusions, because they believe Patsy wrote the note. They just did. It's that simple. So the expert conclusions were rejected again, and they believe the experts had no idea of what they were talking about, which really smacks of arrogance. All right, the leaking was now becoming a downpour. Leaked to the press in March 1997, the headline screened out Patsy's guilt. The Boulder Daily Camera, quote, ransom note author likely was female, end quote. The Colorado Spring Gazette, quote, Ramsey Probe focuses on mother's handwriting, end quote. ABC News reported that they have, quote, learned there are similarities between handwriting of Patsy Ramsey and the ransom note. There is not enough to prove conclusively that Patsy Ramsey wrote the note, end quote. You will be shocked to learn from the homicide expert who told Paula that handwriting analysis is, quote, an okay investigative discipline. 
It's not DNA. It's not fingerprints. It's not serology, but it's a tool, end quote. Yeah. And the conclusions reached in this analysis are evidence. But the handwriting analysis wasn't the only shocking information to come out in March 1997. The Rocky Mountain News reported, quote, no footprints in the snow means no intruder, end quote. Brace yourself. Here come the footprint stories. But wait, is something wiggling in the back of your mind? You thought the police report indicated that there was no snow on the sidewalks, didn't you? From Officer Reitenbeck? Well, that's totally accurate. No snow, nothing to leave footprints in. But that didn't stop detectives. The media reported that the absence of tracks in the snow was supposedly among the first clues that led the investigators to suspect someone in the family. And the news stories quoted two police sources. Did the reporters contact the Ramseys for an explanation or a fact check? No. But we know what Officer Paul Reisenbach told his superiors on December 26, 1996, the day John Benet's body was found, that there were no footprints, no snow on the sidewalks around the house, and the crime scene photos taken that day confirms this. This is totally made up. Sergeant Reichenbach confirms his observations in a March 1997 affidavit for a search warrant. He, quote, again deals with the condition of the yard and noted in his report that there was a very light dusting of snow and frost on the exposed grass in the yard. Some of the grass was covered with snow from previous snowfalls, and this was described as being crusty and measuring one to two inch deep, end quote. No footprints. This false narrative was reaffirmed again by Boulder PD in March 1997, when fake reports on the no footprints in the snow narrative was pointing a finger at the family. March 11, 1997, 44 newspapers across the country published the story, with 18 more the next day across 38 states. And many of these reports repeated the no sign of forced entry bupkis. It succeeded in vilifying the Ramseys further. And some still believe these false stories. In September 1997, Vanity Fair magazine picked up on the mantle of publishing false stories from the Boulder PD when reporter Anne Louise Barbeck showed up in town determined to get the real story on the John Benet Ramsey case. While repeating many of the same falsehoods, such as John piloted the plane to John Benet's funeral, Patsy Ramsey's handwriting sets off alarm bells, a few new ones popped up. Paula lists them. Quoting, would a smart guy like John Ramsey write such a long ransom note? John Benet was redressed. John Ramsey loses his temper about money. And only a child or midget could crawl through the space. Referring to that metal grate by the basement window, John Ramsey hires attorneys. Ramseys get copy of most sensitive critical police reports. Ligatures on John Benet's neck were very loose, consistent with staging. John Ramsey's children arrived at 7.55 p.m. All right, ever eager to help, the number of highlights from the article were repeated in 228 newspapers across the United States, Australia, and the UK. So the, the first Boulder officer on the scene was Rick French. While not admitting or explaining that he failed to find John Benet's body, he did mention to Vanity Fair something that has zero documentary foundation at all. That is, Patsy Ramsey was watching French while, quote, peering at him through splayed fingers held over her eyes, end quote. Now, I had no idea what that meant, though I do actually recall hearing it. I gather this was supposed to imply that she was worried about the police and not her missing daughter. Bizarre. Officer French writes in his police report that he, quote, thinks the Ramseys are acting appropriately, end quote. Further, in his formal interview on January 10th, 1997, he confirms the grief the Ramseys were expressing, breaking down, crying periodically, looking like they'd been hit by a truck. But these reports weren't public. The Vanity Fair article was. Enter District Attorney Alex Hunter. He seems to believe it was appropriate to wax philosophically about this active murder investigation with Vanity Fair, wondering if, quote, 
someone as smart as Ramsey would write such a long ransom note, end quote. Hunter refers to John Ramsey as an ice man, the man who is observed in police reports breaking down, sobbing multiple times, punctuated by periods of subdued calm the day John Binney died. Hunter has no evidence that John wrote the note. Recall, six handwriting experts cleared him completely. So what is the point of smearing John Ramsey like this when Hunter is actually in charge of this investigation? Paula Woodward points out that Hunter was in violation of the rules of professional conduct for an attorney, although he was not asked to respond before the Colorado Bar Association, though I cannot think of a more deserving candidate to do so. However, this is when Governor Ray Romer removed Hunter from any influence in the investigation. Bravo, Governor. And it was back again. Months later, that accusation that John Ramsey flew his family to John Bonet's funeral outside Atlanta, Georgia, still blatantly false. And it irks that this is easy enough to prove if Vanity Fair had bothered to conduct actual journalism instead of writing a fantasy story about an alternative universe. Far too easy to just repeat the content of other articles than actually conducting yourself like actual journalists. I just, I just uh, can't even believe it. Okay, another false statement that John Benet was redressed. All right, for the record, the evidence from her clothing and taken from her bed to prove this was not the case. I am really running out of words to describe these statements as untrue, dishonest, fabricated, deceitful. I'm going to have to work on this. Public accusation. Only a child or midget could get through the crawl space, referring to that metal grate by the basement broken window area. Okay, so homicide expert Lou Schmidt tried it. He is neither small nor a child, and he got through the metal grate, through the broken window, and into the Ramsey basement with ease. She's going to spend every last penny I make supposedly said John Ramsey about Patsy. Well, he didn't say that, but even if he did, so what? Do men not complain about their wives spending too much money on occasion? Well, anyway, it was a fabrication. See, new word, uh, fabrication. And John Ramsey explained, quote, there was always enough money. Money was certainly not something to get angry about at this time in our lives, end quote. And I'm still not sure what that has to do with a murder investigation. Just more anti-Ramsey bunk. John Ramsey hires attorneys. They lawyered up. Well, John Ramsey didn't hire anybody. He wasn't capable of thinking after losing John Benet. So once again, here we are. John's business attorney, who was a former Boulder DA prosecutor, decided to hire attorneys for the family. And John did not know about this till later when he was told. Yet, written in Vanity Fair was, quote, Ramsey decided that his wife should have her own lawyers, and he retained Patrick Burke and Patrick Foreman, end quote. Again, did Vanity Fair confirm this information? No, they didn't. Reported, quote, the Ramseys have been provided with copies of all the most sensitive and critical police and detective reports, end quote. Oh my God, gee, wouldn't it be great if all the family had to do was ask for all the police reports and whoosh, the police just handed all the case documents over? Now, in true crime, we would die to have access to such materials, but we also know that it doesn't happen. FOIA, or Freedom of Information Act, requests take forever, and can get denied due to some technicality. So to be clear, this just isn't true. What the Ramseys did receive was a copy of notes from Detective Linda Ont, unsolicited. They hadn't asked for a copy of it, nor did Ont get prior approval from the Boulder PD to give it to them. More on this. Regarding copies of reports, on April 21st, 1997, the Ramsey attorneys received 32 pages of copies of first responder reports from that terrible morning. This was a quid pro quo agreement with the Boulder PD. The Ramseys would receive these copies if they agreed to be interrogated on April 30th, 1997. Now realize by now, we are four months into this. 
there were hundreds upon hundreds of other reports that the Ramses did not get copies of and still do not have. But Anne Louise Barbeck followed up, publishing that the Ramses were demanding copies of the entire police file. Still not true. Attorney Hal Haddon said that they hadn't asked for the entire file because that is completely unrealistic and there is no way that the police would do that. But they did get these 32 pages out of hundreds, if not thousands of pages of files and documents at this point. All right. This part is really difficult, but here we go. Published information. The ligatures around her neck and right wrist were, investigators say, very loose and consistent with staging. Staging means that the crime scene is deliberately set up to project an untrue scenario or situation. So staging is a falsehood. And again, this is not the case. The autopsy describes a white cord around John Bonet's neck with a double knot. The coroner writes a full paragraph on the physical damage to John Bonet's neck, noting that a quote, a deep ligature furrow encircles the entire neck, end quote, which is confirmed in the autopsy photos, diametrically opposing this article's claim. The autopsy report was released to the public in August 1997 weeks before these articles, giving plenty of time for fact-checking that never happened. And the Boulder PD knew this and were supplying information that they knew was not true. John Ramsey's children arrive at the Ramsey house at 7.55 p.m. Well, here is another one where I thought, and so what? But this isn't true either. Um, John Andrew Ramsey and Melinda Ramsey traveled from Minneapolis to Atlanta where they'd spent Christmas. They arrived at their father's house at 1.30 p.m. that afternoon in time to meet John and Patsy after John Benet's body was found. So I have no idea why this is even an issue or being reported. Another falsity made its way into common parlance. Quote, out of 73 names submitted for testing, Patsy's handwriting was the only one that set off alarm bells says an investigator tied closely with the testing of the ransom note, end quote. Oh my God, more handwriting stories rearing their foul head. Do you see why there's still so much misinformation out there 25 years later? And guess what? This is still not true. Repeating untrue statements does not make them true. And more than half of the handwritings of other people analyzed was not ruled out. The police are still ignoring evidence that largely cleared Patsy. They're just not having it, and they keep leaking erroneous information that Patsy wrote the ransom note, Patsy did this, Patsy did that. And again, the six handwriting analysts said she didn't. When Paula Woodward questioned Anne Louise Barback about these errors, oh, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when she did, Barback stated, quote, no one compared to the level of fact-checking that we did, end quote. Oh, honey, I got news. You didn't bother to read the public autopsy report. So stop it. This Vanity Fair article is trash, utter rubbish. And that concludes episode 37, The Pen is Mightier Than the Sword, on Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey case 25 years later by Paula Woodward. Be sure to read the book because you know I have to cut out parts, which drives me crazy. Now, in my next episode, 38, The Ends Justify the Means, we will see further shenanigans by the Boulder PD and District Attorney's Office, and we'll debunk many myths still floating around that are still completely false. What is true? What does the evidence tell us? What does the autopsy say? What about the DNA? And why this vendetta against the Ramses anyway? And murder bookies, I am so excited. Drum roll. My new book selection is Bone Deep by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel L. Schwartz on the Betsy Faria murder case and the subject of a new NBC limited series, The Thing About Pam, that's out in March 2022. Oh my God, they are also going to be at CrimeCon Las Vegas. Not Pam. Definitely not Pam. More on this later. I have never been so pissed off reading a book as Bone Deep ever in my life. And that's saying something. 
Your sense of justice will be tested to the extreme, and you simply must read this or listen to my next trilogy, and I'd love you to do both, because you know how I love details. Back on December 27, 2011, Russell Faria returned to his Troy, Missouri home after his weekly game night with his friends to an unthinkable grisly scene. His wife, Betsy, lay dead, knife lodged in her neck. First responders concluded that Betsy was dead for hours when Russ discovered her. And yet, incredibly, the police and prosecutor ignored the evidence. In their minds, Rush was guilty. But prominent defense attorney Joel L. Schwartz quickly recognized the real killer. Bone Deep is a perfect storm of malfeasance and missteps that led to an innocent man's conviction, exposing what can happen when the police, prosecutor, judge, and jury all fail in their duty to protect the innocent and let a killer get away with murder. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. The link is on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Both really help me grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Follow me or subscribe to my shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Let my episodes pop right into your feed. And until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material and snack and drink information for Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey case 25 years later, is found on my blog too. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosina. Lyrics by Otto Harbach.